Section 4 of the Turkish Embassy Letters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Amanda Mel, Portland, Oregon. The Turkish Embassy Letters by Lady Mary Wortley Montague. Letter 9. Adrianople, April 18th, O.S. 1717. I wrote to you, dear sister, and to all my other English correspondents by the last ship, and only heaven can tell when I shall have another opportunity of sending to you. But I cannot forbear to write again, though perhaps my letter may lie upon my hands these two months. To confess the truth, my head is so full of my entertainment yesterday that tis absolutely necessary for my own repose to give it some vent. Without further preface, I will then begin my story. I was invited to dine with the Grand Vizier's lady, and it was with a great deal of pleasure I prepared myself for an entertainment which was never before given to any Christian. I thought I should very little satisfy her curiosity, which I did not doubt was a considerable motive to the invitation, by going in a dress she was used to see, and therefore dressed myself in the court habit of Vienna, which is much more magnificent than ours. However, I chose to go incognita, to avoid any disputes about ceremony, and went in a Turkish coach, only attended by my woman that held up my train, and the Greek lady who was my interpretess. I was met at the court door by her black eunuch, who helped me out of the coach with great respect, and conducted me through several rooms, where her she-slaves, finely dressed, were ranged on each side. In the innermost I found the lady sitting on her sofa, in a sable vest, she advanced to meet me and presented me half a dozen of her friends with great civility. She seemed a very good-looking woman, near fifty years old. I was surprised to observe so little magnificence in her house, the furniture being all very moderate, and except the habits and number of her slaves nothing about her appeared expensive. She guessed at my thoughts, and told me she was no longer of an age to spend either her time or money in superfluities that her whole expense was in charity, and her whole employment praying to God. There was no affectation in this speech. Both she and her husband are entirely given up to devotion. He never looks upon any other woman, and, what is much more extraordinary, touches no bribes, notwithstanding the example of all his predecessors. He is so scrupulous on this point, he would not accept Mr. Wortley's present till he had been assured over and over that it was a settled prerequisite of his place at the entrance of every ambassador." She entertained me with all kind of civility till dinner came in, which was served, one dish at a time, to a vast number, all finely dressed after their manner, which I don't think so bad as you have perhaps heard it represented. I'm a very good judge of their eating, having lived three weeks in the house of an effendi at Belgrade, who gave us very magnificent dinners dressed by his own cooks. The first week they pleased me extremely, but I own I then began to grow weary of their table— and desired our own cook might add a dish or two after our manner. But I attribute this to custom, and am very much inclined to believe that an Indian, who had never tasted of either, would prefer their cookery to ours. Their sauces are very high, all the roast very much done. They use a great deal of very rich spice. The soup is served for the last dish, and they have at least as great a variety of ragu as we have. I was very sorry I could not eat of as many as the good lady would have had me, who was very earnest in serving me of everything. The treat concluded with coffee and perfumes, which is a high mark of respect. Two slaves, kneeling, sensed my hair, clothes, and handkerchief. 
After the ceremony, she commanded her slaves to play and dance, which they did with their guitars in their hands, and she excused me to their want of skill, saying she took no care to accomplish them in that art. I returned her thanks, and soon after took my leave. I was conducted back in the same manner I entered, and would have gone straight to my own house, but the Greek lady with me earnestly solicited me to visit the Kiyaya's lady, saying he was the second officer in the empire, and ought indeed to be looked upon as the first, the grand vizier having only the name, while he exercised the authority. I had found so little diversion in the vizier's harem that I had no mind to go into another, but her importunity prevailed with me, and I am extremely glad I was so complacent. All things here were with quite another air than at the grand vizier's, and the very house confessed the difference between an old devotee and a young beauty. It was nicely clean and magnificent. I was met at the door by two black eunuchs, who led me through a long gallery between two ranks of beautiful young girls, with their hair finely plaited, almost hanging to their feet, all dressed in fine light damasks, brocaded with silver. I was sorry that decency did not permit me to stop to consider them nearer, but that thought was lost upon my entrance into a large room, or rather pavilion, built round with gilded sashes, which were most of them thrown up, and the trees planted near them gave an agreeable shade, which hindered the sun from being troublesome. The jasmines and honeysuckles that twisted round their trunks shed a soft perfume, increased by a white marble fountain playing sweet water in the lower part of the room, which fell into three or four basins with a pleasing sound. The roof was painted with all sorts of flowers, falling out of gilded baskets that seemed tumbling down. On a sofa— Raised three steps and covered with fine Persian carpets, sat the Kiyaya's lady, leaning on cushions of white satin embroidered, and at her feet sat two young girls about twelve years old, lovely as angels, dressed perfectly rich and almost covered with jewels. But they were hardly seen near the fair Fatima, for that is her name, so much her beauty effaced everything I have seen, nay, all that has been called lovely either in England or Germany." I must own that I never saw anything so gloriously beautiful, nor can I recollect a face that would have been taken notice of near hers. She stood up to receive me, saluting me after their fashion, putting her hand to her heart with a sweetness full of majesty that no court breeding could ever give. She ordered cushions to be given me, and took care to place me in the corner, which is the place of honor. I confess, though the Greek lady had before me given a great opinion of her beauty, I was so struck with admiration that I could not for some time speak to her, being wholly taken up in gazing. That surprising harmony of features, that charming result of the whole, that exact proportion of body, that lovely bloom of complexion unsullied by art, the unutterable enchantment of her smile, but her eyes, large and black with all the soft languishment of the blue, every turn of her face discovering some new grace. After my first surprise was over, I endeavored, by nicely examining her face, to find out some imperfection, without any fruit of my search but my being clearly convinced of the error of that vulgar notion that a face exactly proportioned and perfectly beautiful would not be agreeable, nature having done for her, with more success, what Apelles is said to have essayed, by a collection of the most exact features, to form a perfect face." Add to all this a behavior so full of grace and sweetness, such easy motions with an air so majestic yet free from stiffness or affectation, 
that I am persuaded, could she be suddenly transported upon the most polite throne of Europe, nobody would think her other than born and bred to be a queen, though educated in a country we call barbarous. To say all in a word, our most celebrated English beauties would vanish near her. When I took my leave, two maids brought in a fine silver basket of embroidered handkerchiefs. She begged I would wear the richest for her sake, and gave the others to my woman and her interpretess. I retired through the same ceremonies as before, and could not help thinking I had been some time in Mohammed's paradise, so much was I charmed with what I had seen. I know not how the relation of it appears to you. I wish it may give you part of my pleasure, if I would have my dear sister share in all my diversions. Letter 10. Adrianople, May 17th, O.S. I'm going to leave Adrianople, and I would not do it without giving you some account of all that is curious in it, which I have taken a great deal of pains to see. I will not trouble you with wise dissertations, whether or no this is the same city that was anciently called Orestesit or Oresti, which you know better than I do. It is now called from the Emperor Adrian, and was the first European seat of the Turkish Empire, and has been the favorite residence of many sultans. Mohammed IV and Mustafa, the brother of the reigning emperor, were so fond of it that they wholly abandoned Constantinople, which humor so far exasperated the Janizaries that it was a considerable motive to the rebellions that deposed them. Yet this man seems to love to keep his court here. I can give you no reason for this partiality. Tis true the situation is fine, and the country all around very beautiful, but the air is extremely bad, and the seraglio itself is not free from the ill effect of it. The town is said to be eight miles in compass. I suppose they reckon in the gardens. There are some good houses in it, I mean large ones, for the architecture of their palaces never makes any great show. It is now very full of people, but they are most of them such as follow the court or camp, and when they are removed, I am told, tis no populous city. The river Maritza, anciently the Hebrus, on which it is situated, is dried up every summer, which contributes very much to make it unwholesome. It is now a very pleasant stream. There are two noble bridges built over it. I had the curiosity to go to see the exchange in my Turkish dress, which is disguise sufficient. Yet I own I was not very easy when I saw it crowded with Janizaries, but they dare not be rude to a woman, and made way for me with as much respect as if I had been in my own figure. It is half a mile in length, the roof arched and kept extremely neat. It holds three hundred and sixty-five shops, furnished with all sorts of rich goods, exposed to sale in the same manner as at the new exchange in London. But the pavement is kept much neater, and the shops are all so clean they seem just new painted. Idle people of all sorts walk here for their diversion, or amuse themselves with drinking coffee or sorbet, which is cried about as oranges and sweetmeats are in our playhouses. I observed most of the rich tradesmen were Jews. That people are in incredible power in this country. They have many privileges above all the natural Turks themselves, and have formed a very considerable commonwealth here, being judged by their own laws. They have drawn the whole trade of the empire into their hands, partly by the firm union among themselves, and partly by the idle temper and want of industry in the Turks. Every pasha has his Jew, who is his homme de fer. He is let into all his secrets and does all his business. No bargain is made, no bribe received, no merchandise disposed of, but what passes through their hands. They are the physicians, the stewards, and the interpreters of all the great men. You may judge how advantageous this is to a people who never fail to make use of the smallest advantages. 
they have found the secret of making themselves so necessary that they are certain of the protection of the court whatever ministry is in power even the english french and italian merchants who are sensible of their artifices are however forced to trust their affairs to their negotiation nothing of trade being managed without them and the meanest among them being too important to be disobliged since the whole body take care of his interests with as much vigour as they would those of the most considerable of their members there are many of them vastly rich but take care to make little public show of it though they live in their houses in the utmost luxury and magnificence this copious subject has drawn me from my description of the exchange founded by ali pasha whose name it bears near it is the charchi a street of a mile in length full of shops of all kinds of fine merchandise but excessively dear nothing being made here it is covered on the top with boards to keep out the rain that merchants may meet conveniently in all kinds of weathers the besseton near it is another exchange built upon pillars where all sorts of house furniture are sold glittering everywhere with gold rich embroidery and jewels it makes a very agreeable show from this place i went in my turkish coach to the camp which is to move in a few days to the frontiers the sultan has already gone to his tents and all his court the appearance of them is indeed very magnificent those of the great men are rather like palaces than tents taking up a great compass of ground and being divided into a vast number of apartments they are all of green and the pashas of three tails have those ensigns of their power placed in very conspicuous manner before their tents which are adorned on the top with gilded balls more or less according to their different ranks the ladies go in coaches to see the camp as eagerly as ours did to that of hyde park but it is very easy to observe that the soldiers do not begin the campaign with any great cheerfulness the war is a general grievance upon the people but particularly hard upon the tradesmen now that the grand seigneur is resolved to lead his army in person every company of them is obliged upon this occasion to make a present according to their ability i took the pains of rising at six in the morning to see the ceremony which did not however begin till eight the grand seigneur was at the seraglio window to see the procession which passed through the principal streets it was preceded by an effendi mounted on a camel richly furnished reading aloud the alcoran finely bound laid upon a cushion he was surrounded by a parcel of boys in white singing some verses of it followed by a man dressed in green boughs representing a clean husbandman sowing seed after him several reapers with garlands of ears of corn as ceres is pictured with scythes in their hands seeming to mow then a little machine drawn by oxen in which was a windmill and boys employed in grinding corn followed by another machine drawn by buffaloes carrying an oven and two more boys one employed in kneading the bread and another in drawing it out of the oven these boys threw little cakes on both sides among the crowd and were followed by the whole company of bakers marching on foot two by two in their best clothes with cakes loaves pastries and pies of all sorts on their heads and after them two buffoons or jack puddings with their faces and clothes smeared with meal who diverted the mob with their antic gestures in the same manner followed all the companies of trade in the empire the nobler sort such as jewellers mercers etc finely mounted and many of the pageants that represent their trades perfectly magnificent among which that of the furriers made one of the best figures being a very large machine set round with the skins of ermines foxes etc so well stuffed that the animals seemed to be alive and followed by music and dancers i believe they were upon the whole twenty thousand men all ready to follow his highness if he commanded them 
The rear was closed by the volunteers, who came to beg the honor of dying in his service. This part of the show seemed to me so barbarous that I removed from the window upon the first appearance of it. They were all naked to the middle. Some had their arms pierced through with arrows, left sticking in them. Others had them sticking in their heads, the blood trickling down their faces. Some slashed their arms with sharp knives, making the blood spring out upon those that stood there, and this is looked upon as an expression of their zeal for glory. I am told that some make use of it to advance their love, and when they are near the window where their mistress stands, all the women in town being veiled to see this spectacle, they stick another arrow for her sake, who gives some sign of approbation and encouragement to this gallantry. The whole show lasted for near eight hours, to my great sorrow, who was heartily tired, though I was in the house of the widow of the Captain Pasha, Admiral, who refreshed me with coffee, sweetmeats, sorbet, etc., with all possible civility. I went two days after to see the mosque of Sultan Selim I, which is a building very well worth the curiosity of a traveller. I was dressed in my Turkish habit, and admitted without scruple, though I believe they guessed who I was, by the extreme officiousness of the doorkeeper to show me every part of it. It is situated very advantageously in the midst of the city, and in the highest part of it making a very noble show. The first court has four gates, and the innermost three. They are both of them surrounded with cloisters, with marble pillars of the Ionic order, finely polished, and of very lively colors. The whole pavement is of white marble, and the roof of the cloisters divided into several cupolas or domes, headed with gilt balls on the top. In the midst of each court are fine fountains of white marble, and before the great gate of the mosque a portico with green marble pillars which has five gates, the body of the mosque being one prodigious dome. I understand so little of architecture I dare not pretend to speak of the proportions. It seemed to me very regular. This I am sure of, it is vastly high, and I thought it the noblest building I ever saw. It has two rows of marble galleries on pillars with marble balusters, the pavement is also marble, covered with Persian carpets. In my opinion, it is a great addition to its beauty that it is not divided into pews and encumbered with forms and benches like our churches, nor the pillars, which are, most of them, red and white marble, disfigured by the little tawdry images and pictures that give Roman Catholic churches the air of toy shops. The walls seem to be inlaid with such very lively colors and small flowers that I could not imagine what stones had been made use of. But going nearer, I saw that they were crusted with Japan china, which has a very beautiful effect. In the midst hung a vast lamp of silver, gilt, besides which, I do verily believe, there were at least two thousand of a lesser size. This must look very glorious when they are all lighted. But being at night, no women are suffered to enter. Under the large lamp is a great pulpit of carved wood, gilt, and just by, a fountain to wash, which, you know, is an essential part of their devotion." In one corner is a little gallery, enclosed with gilded lattices for the Grand Seigneur. At the upper end, a large niche, very like an altar, raised two steps, covered with gold brocade, and standing before it, two silver gilt candlesticks, the height of a man, and in them white wax candles, as thick as a man's waist. The outside of the mosque is adorned with towers, vastly high, gilt on the top, from whence the imams call the people to prayers. I had the curiosity to go up one of them, which is contrived so artfully as to give surprise to all that see it. There is but one door, which leads to three different staircases, going to the three different stories of the tower, in such a manner that three priests may ascend, rounding, without ever meeting each other, a contrivance very much admired. 
Behind the mosque is an exchange full of shops where poor artificers are lodged gratis. I saw several dervises at their prayers here. They are dressed in a plain piece of woolen with their arms bare and a woolen cap on their heads like a high-crowned hat without brims. I went to see some other mosques, built much after the same manner, but not comparable in point of magnificence to this I have described, which is infinitely beyond any church in Germany or England. I won't talk of other countries I have not seen. The Seraglio does not seem a very magnificent palace, but the gardens are very large, plentifully supplied with water and full of trees, which is all I know of them, having never been in them. I tell you nothing of the order of Mr. Wortley's entry and his audience— these things are always the same, and have been so often described I won't trouble you with the repetition. The young prince, about eleven years old, sits near his father when he gives an audience. He is a handsome boy, but probably will not immediately succeed the sultan, there being two sons of Sultan Mustafa, his eldest brother remaining, the eldest about twenty years old, on whom the hopes of the people are fixed. This reign has been bloody and avaricious. I am apt to believe they are very impatient to see the end of it. P.S. I will write to you again from Constantinople. End of section four. Recording by Amanda Mel, Portland, Oregon.